Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of the AFT Construction Podcast. And just a reminder for those of you listeners, if there's any topics that you want to have us address with our guests, make sure and reach out and message us. We did have quite a few listeners reach out in regard to GMP, Guaranteed Maximum Price versus Cost Plus. So here in a couple of weeks, we're going to release that episode from a client perspective as well as from a builder perspective. And today's guest is Caroline DeCesare. We're super excited to bring her on. She's an interior designer. She's renowned and has worked on projects all throughout the country. She does both commercial and residential and gives us an amazing perspective of interior design. Can it be taught? Is it inherent uh, in the designer? And then we also talk about the importance of interior design. Why should you have an interior designer on the project? And when should you bring that designer into the project? So stay tuned. So welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast. I'm Brad Levitt, and today we have Carolina Cesare. Welcome, Caroline. Hi, how are you? Thank you for joining us. So for those of you that don't know, Caroline is an amazing interior designer. She's done some amazing projects, so we're excited to have her on, so welcome. Thank you. So Caroline, let's dive into this. How Can good design be taught? Wow. I think good design principles and uh, can be taught. Do I think taste can be taught? I don't think taste can be taught. So talk about that, like design principles, what would that entail? Well, you know, when you're working on a project, like good space planning, good flow, uh, good proportion, balance, symmetry, all of those things you kind of learn in design school, I think those can be learned. I think people, some people are born with them innately. And I think a good eye for design and a taste level can be improved upon, but I kind of think you either got it or you don't. So let's talk about that. How, if someone, it's not innate to them to have a good taste in design, is there a way to learn good taste? Yeah, I mean, you could work for someone, you know, work for someone who has good taste and kind of mirror them and follow them. I think you could educate yourself. But I think just having had a lot of employees and worked with a lot of people, there's a certain baseline that doesn't really improve, I don't think, if you don't naturally have some innate talent for it. So there has to be some gift, I mean, as far as colorizing, you know, selections, will things flow, look mm-hmm. right, you know, but in, in spacing, you know, what are some elements that really stick out to you? If you're thinking about designing a house, what are some really key important elements? Well, I think for a, ho- for a home, it's, it's how do the clients live, and I think I always tell my clients that Architects think from the outside in. They're, you know, driven by the form of the house and the, the architecture. And then designers, good designers, think from the inside out. And the way you start with that is how does your family or client live and use the space. So when you're sitting down with the client, how does that process go? Are you vetting them from the beginning to understand their lifestyle, their dynamic Definitely. kids? Yeah. So what, are, what would be some questions you'd ask them at that preliminary appointment? Well, we ask, um, you know, get to know them. Where are they from? How did they meet? You know, what what's their current living situation? Uh, sometimes it's a second home. Sometimes it's, you know, we've never done this before. Or we're building our dream home. Uh, we're downsizing. We've already done the big dream home. Now we're empty nesters and we are downsizing. So I think all of those um, questions, really, it's, it's such that first appointment is just information gathering as much as you can learn about them, the better you can see if it's a good fit. So when a client comes in, if it's their second home, what would be something to consider if it's a second home or vacation home? Um, Are they going to entertain? You know, obviously if it's a second home and they're just escaping, um, that has one set of requirements. If, you know, their six teenagers are going to show up with their ski buddies or their golf buddies and you're going to need a lot of beds and a lot of places to sleep, people uh, that's different so really again even if it's first home second home it's it's how do they see living and using those spaces and how can the house support their lifestyle well one thing I noticed I'm working with you uh, you know doing our first project together is you're really good at the flow like one thing that you really stuck to is how do the doors open right what do you see when you open the door whether it be the bathroom or coming into the house so are those things that you've just learned over time is that something you learn in school I think you definitely learn that over time. I think um, all designers have had a project where they've done an amazing room and then they try to photograph the room and <laughs> you can't get a good angle or the bathroom 
is too small or the door opens wrong. And so um, I think you learn, you learn those things by doing for sure to see how you're aesthetically interacting with a space. That's super interesting. So I've never heard that comment before. So do you ever anticipate the photography side of thing when oh, you're designing and how to of, photograph? Yeah. That's interesting. So are, are you thinking about like where the photographer will do, take their main shots or how they'll fit the camera in? I mean, what are some of the things that go through your mind process? Well, I think uh, as a designer, in my mind, I can picture I can picture the space way ahead of time. So I can see it and I can walk through it in my mind. And so I see this a great, amazing bathroom and then fast forward to the house is done and my photographer's trying to capture it and he can't physically get himself in the bathroom like he's either in the shower or you know some way to get that shot of that pretty vanity and so it's plus also when you're walking in forget the camera forget the photography but when you walk in are you looking at the vanity are you looking at the side of a toilet are you looking at a blank wall like how are you experiencing same with your kitchen do you walk in and see like oh the range the hood the all the things or do you come in from some weird angle that you're not really experiencing it. So I think photography is one way to think about it, how you experience the space is another way. That's really interesting because, yeah, if you're thinking about when the photographer's in the house, they're going to be having the camera at eye level almost. And mm -hmm. so as they're coming in, so what they're seeing is what the person will visually see as they're walking into the space. So what's cap capturing their attention? So what do you prefer, going back to your comment about a kitchen, do you prefer to have the hood as an accent? Do you prefer to have you know the sink I mean in, in all the amazing award-winning projects you've done what has been the key to success well I I do like it's funny I was um, looking the other day at my own house and I do have a beautiful range wall in my own house that I designed for me but it isn't you don't see it till you're in the family room later so I don't know what that means I need some further analysis but um, most projects you know you want to come in and kind of get the hero shot of the kitchen, which is like that range backsplash kitchen island in front of the range, that kind of thing. So is there any thought when considering, because most clients want to do a large island, so mm -hmm. are you ever opposed to them? Because some will want the range or the cooktop to be at the island so they can face the great room, but then it inhibits the view really because the hood's right over the island. I try really hard to talk them out of that, but I have lost that battle um, on actually one of our most loved projects on Pinterest and social media has an island hood and I I did like eight houses with that client before I let him do that <laughs> <laughs> and um, it looks amazing but I broke the rules you know I took it higher than it should have been so that it wasn't really low in the space and cutting off the space so so how did you arm wrestle the inspector and the contractor to do that uh, I don't think there were issues so they were okay with that you know with yeah, the ventilation yeah, and so yeah. on. Because I know another option you can do like the downdraft, but then there's limitations yeah, and you got to yeah. put the infloor vents, you know, so it's yeah. a little more work, labor intensive. Yeah. Not as cute. Yeah, not as cute. Definitely. I My golden number is six foot two from hood to bottom. So, what, to so, so define that, the six foot two, what is that? From the floor, from the finished floor to the bottom of the hood, six foot two is golden. So I've never heard that measurement. But, you know, but for the like if you look at their literature wolf and sub-zero whatever they'll they'll tell you it has to be six foot or lower and so i'm always breaking it by at least a few but like if you're, you're a tall guy you mm -hmm. stand up six foot two i mean the one that where we did the island hood we went to like seven foot but wow yeah um but so yeah. so six foot two is kind of tried and true no matter your height it's kind of that eye level yeah for a lot of people are, if they're a little shorter they're looking up and it well, it's got to be higher than eye level. You're going to hit your head on the hood. So eye level for, I always consider eye level is 5'6", six, so 66 inches. So 6 foot 2 is 74 inches. So that's just like don't ding your head on the hood. And from a design element, it allows you a little bit more space for a decorative backsplash. Yeah. 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 So what's your favorite backsplash in the kitchen? Favorite? Do you have one? Do I have one? Um, yeah, it's funny. People always want to know a designer's favorites, and we're so used to doing so many different things for different clients. Right now, my current favorite would be running the slab up the wall, just mm -hmm. how clean that is as far as... But then your contractor, Brad, can't put outlets in it. Yes. So you have to get those under the cabinet because there's nothing worse than, like, beautiful slab, beautiful slab. Outlets. Outlet. Yeah. 
So let's talk about that because with any design, there's a lot of those little elements that'll stick out and I'm mm -hmm. sure drive you crazy as a designer. So how involved does a designer need to be with the contractor when you're thinking about those little elements, right, that'll distract from the overall intent of the design? Well, we try to draw as much as possible and then we also have like our, our rules that we try to explain first and foremost, but some people ignore and then we're on the job site and then we're begging them to move them. <laughs> no. Um, but no, I think planning ahead, like I love um, putting outlets throughout the house in the baseboard horizontally so that you... That's my favorite, by the way. I love that. But there's a lot of planning. I mean, you have to make sure your baseboard's tall enough. The contractor knows that. The electrician, right? So right. And then you frame it. And yeah, and you where's your electrician? It. Is he putting Backing an extra, and, you yeah. know, two by four? But it looks so it. good. Yeah. It looks so good to do that. Yeah. So um, I just think the more you can think about those things and coordinate ahead of time, the better you're going to be with the result. Like even where um, thermostats go, you know, uh, where do keypads for the alarm system go all of that kind of stuff to keep things all that visual noise that you you need that you don't want to see and you don't want it to interrupt your design so that's why it's really important for the you know a lot of times we'll meet with the client and we're going to digress a little bit but you know a lot of times they say well why do i need a designer right you know i is it worth the expense i mean but to your point you know hiring someone that understands lifestyle understands flow understands the furnishings that are going to go in understands the construction process, you know how to hide certain elements and still make it look nice. What are some other pros, you know, to hire a designer? I think we're, I think a designer is your biggest advocate in making sure that your house fits your lifestyle. And um, I think the more experience and training that that designer has, uh, the more that you're just gonna benefit from right out of the gate. And I have clients say to me all the time, I would never have thought of that. I would never have thought of that. I would have never. It's like, well, it's not your job to think of it. It's our job to think of it. And so um, we're fortunate enough for the most part to work on projects where people assemble a team right away. There's no question of, oh, I don't need a architect. I don't need a builder. I don't need a designer. They're, they're getting a whole team straight out of the gate. But what we bring is that the sooner you get designers involved, we're working on how big the rooms are, how close the rooms are together. A lot of interior architecture that people don't usually give designers credit for that is much harder to change when you come to us with, oh, here's the plan. You know, we're in for the permit. And now can you help us colorize? Which, by the way, I hate that word. <laughs> for the it's record. But anyone that understands design, they're not colorizing. No. Right. So design is like, imagine a fashion designer. A designer... You would never say he's a fashion decorator. You, so a fa fashion you know, colorizer. Be, right. So a fashion designer picks the cut of the shirt, the material of the shirt, the design the shirt. They design it from scratch. A fashion decorator would be someone who like bedazzles a t-shirt or prints a t-shirt. So design is you know creating spaces, creating elements, and then yes, you do later decorate them with things. But decorating and colorize always speaks to after the fact of actual design, in my opinion. It's a great analogy, and it makes complete sense, right? So that's an important part of thinking. But I can tell you from the contractor point of view, you know, sometimes I'll have clients call me and they're like, "Hey, Brett, you know, we'd like you to build our house, but we don't want a designer." And I'm like, "Well, I'm not the builder for you." You know, I I've been I, I've been around it enough where I understand the value of a designer. And to your point, there's a lot more than just, "Hey, I'm picking this tile mm -hmm. and this wood flooring." Right. Right. There's an understanding from the designer where they're going through the floor plan and they're understanding flow, they're understanding visual corridors and you know what's going to pop they're looking at outlet locations um you know they're looking at um like we mentioned how the doors open right. and and there's so many elements of designer and even more than that from a building side on the on the plans you're limited to the information that's going to tell us right you know it's going to tell us ceiling heights it's going to tell us what the exterior finishes are but from an interior side having a good designer that understands cad and can draw and can do elevations now we have something that's easier to bid from for right. our subs. It's easier to identify and make sure that what we're building is going to line up with what the designer entails. Right. So in your experience, how does that separate design firms? Because not all design firms do the CAD. So what separates, a, you know, that definition of designer for that full turnkey spec book, if you right. will? Right. 
Well, I think for me, I mean, that's the question. In the design world, there's everything from influencers to, you know, architects and every phase in between. And so I think um, we don't just draw. It's not like you pick everything and then you just send it off to, like, China to have your drawings done. Like, we have in-house design, and my CAD team will say, okay, do you want to start at a full tile at the bottom of the shower? Do you want to end on a full tile? Do we want to pick lower the ceiling height so that we get only full tiles? Like, there's a million minutia little decisions of every finish, every room, everything that you can only make as you're drawing them. And if I'm not involved in that process or my team's not involved in that process, all these assumptions are made. So, you know, where does the niche go in the shower and how do you terminate the tile and how do you, all those things, your subs, like just picking a tile is like the easiest part, is not, is not hard. Um, it's how does that tile transition? How does it flow into another material? How does it, you know, join up? All of those kinds of things. Well, I think what's fascinating, so for anyone that's listening that's thinking about designing a home, the importance of having a designer, and even those contractors that I know fight designers. I know. I don't like that. Because contractors are my, I always tell our staff, or not our staff, I always tell uh, potential clients, I say, look, I always like to think I'm the most important person on your project, besides you, of course, but it's really the builder. And the builder has that long-term relationship with them that's going to be, you know, when something breaks in the middle of the night, you're calling Brad, you're not calling me. So, but second most is our relationship. And so I don't understand. I've met, you know, over the course of 21 years of doing this, builders who have a very adversarial relationship with designers. They call us desecrators, decorators, you know. <laughs> and I, I don't understand. I think they've just been let down before um, taken down the road. Could be. Could be ego. Could be a lot of things. I think they've probably just had a really bad experience with someone who promised the world to their client and couldn't deliver and the contractor was probably left being responsible for bad decisions. That's yeah, and I, I can say in my history, especially speaking with other contractors, one of, you know, sometimes I'll say, well, we have budgets and the designers don't understand the budget and they're specking things that don't really fit the clients. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, there's some responsibility to build it too. If you're setting a budget with a client in pre-construction, you know, it's working with the designer, giving them information. Well, if they only have 15 bucks a square foot for a tile, you got to make sure they know right. that, right? So right. they can work within those confines. So I think as a team, I mean, the, those things are important, but I can say that, you know, that relationship between contract and designer is everything yeah, for the client. Because for sure. at the end of the day, those are the two that are going to bring that vision to right. life. Yeah. I think if we could invent what, what clients don't understand and what I try to help them understand is that they've met with a builder and they've gotten some idea of cost, you would think, usually before they get to us. But if there was some way to say, I want a $250, $250 a square foot house, and then we could just output that into like, okay, that's what that means. We'd be billionaires. But we don't, you have to say that, then you have to design it, then you have to price it, then you have to value engineer it. You always have to go through the design and through the selection before you realize whether you're in or out of budget because there's 400 unknowns in a budget. How can you budget that, right? I mean, you can say here's our target, but so I have to tell clients that they need to be comfortable with the fact that you're going to have a budget now. We're going to, we understand what that means. We're not going to show you things that are crazy and out of that budget. We're going to work towards that budget. But when you get your first bid back from your contractor, there's going to be things out of budget and we're going to have to get them back in budget. But that's just like part of, we're your number one ally in getting the most out of your budget. But some designers aren't that way. No, they kind of want to shame you into like, well, you can't have all waterworks and oh I thought we were doing a nice project or you know they work on the wife and then get the husband in to like you know well if you were a good husband you'd buy your wife <laughs> this really expensive chandelier you know so I think that transparency from the get-go that it's a process so I think it's important I mean the advice you're given for whether you be a client listening customer or whether you be a builder or designer is that if you can sit down from the beginning mm -hmm. you bring on your architect designer builder yep and you're transparent about your budget. So if you only want to spend a million dollars on your home, if you put that out there, then mm -hmm. all three teams understand what that budget is. Right. And you can now break it down. The contractor can work with the designer and say, okay, well, we're only going to have 50000 for flooring. Okay, well, that's going to entail A, right. B, and C in right. these areas. 
And the more information you have, well, now you can design something that's realistic and that everyone's communicating on, and then you hit the ground running. Right. And you can go through. Whereas if you hire if you hire the architect first and you design this, you know, full masonry, 100% limestone house with a slate roof. With a $300,000 window and, package. Yeah. And then you come to me and say, well, I want it to, I want to walk in and have it be beautiful, but I only have, you know, X amount of money left. So whereas if we started from the beginning, we could help strategize like, okay, let's put limestone in key areas. You know, we got to save some money for all of the processes and poor landscape. They're like the last guy mm-hmm. that gets, you know. Or low voltage. Those are like the two where they. Yeah. Like, oh, I'll do it later. And then yeah. they move into this like palace and it's on a dirt lot, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. They can only do the front yard for the HOA and they can't do the backyard yet. Yeah. So going back to your point, I mean, you know, as we go back a little bit, you had made the comment about just little things in the shower, because one thing, the reason why I'm a big advocate for designers is that, you know, working with someone like yourself, Caroline, you know, you're going through the thought process. You're thinking about not only how they live, but how we're going to execute from a building mentality. So you're specifying, you know, what the wall will look like. So we get a full elevation of what the wall look like in the mm-hmm. shower. And then we have the niche, exactly right. the, the dimension and the size and the depth. So what the advantage there for us is it's not an afterthought. It's not an expense for us now as a builder to go back and try to cut this wall open. Right. Where we have studs in the way, we can plan for it. And as we're laying out the framing, we say when a niche is going here, we don't have a full height stud. We can make sure the depth is right so we can have that. So I think that's a huge reason why most builders should like their designer. Right. So what are some other elements um, that are super important in that relationship with your contractor? I always tell my uh, design staff and is that if you're going to, if things are busy and crazy, the first emails to always answer or respond to are the contractors because they're out in the field. They're probably meeting with subs and any time or delay is money and, and time on the project. And so if we can get back to them, um, in a timely manner, then, you know, then, then talk, then call the client, then call the reps, all of that, but keep those contractors happy because you guys are on the front lines. And, um, I love our relationships with our contractors and subcontractors. And, you know, if, if any idea is great on paper or a picture, but you guys have to make it come to reality. And so I think, well, I like where you're going because you're talking about problem solving because in every day and all the projects we do, some things may look great on paper or we may have thought through every element, but then there's a surprise in the field, right? So right. there's always this problem solving issue and that's what we deal with in our business. And what I'm sure you can relate, what we found is that if you have a good relationship with the architect and designer, right? most of the time between the three of you, you can handle them For and sure. figure them all out, figure the elements before you go to the client and say, oh, we got a problem. Right. You know, most of the time it's solved and they may not know and you may have to point something out, you know, if there's right. a little change, but... You know, that's or you come part. to them with solutions. So, you know, um, I think I also say when I'm talking to clients is that there will be problems. Things will go wrong. I'm sure, you know, everyone on the team at some point will drop the ball because life happens. But it's how we resolve that and how we handle it that makes it a successful team. So versus throwing people under the bus and, and that kind of thing. So I think if, you know, a contractor has a problem and they call me and my, you know, this just happened actually. They said you only elevated two walls in this vestibule, and so we just put tile on those two walls. We didn't put tile on the other two walls because they weren't elevated. Well, in the schedule it said all four walls tile. So to me, that's a learning curve of elevate everything all the time, always, which is is hard because it's money and time. But also some communication probably should have happened when he was doing the tile bid. Hey. I noticed you didn't elevate these two walls. Are they the same as these two walls or are they the same as these two walls? So I think, um, but it's how we resolve it. And so we resolve it and he's like, you know what? I should have caught that. I'm, I'm taking care of it. And we moved on. So it wasn't, it wasn't adversarial, but it can be that way if all everyone cares about is being right and mm-hmm. looking good. So let's talk about that. For anyone that's listening, what does that mean to elevate? You know, I understand that being a builder, you know, it's the visual part of it. But right. it, but walk us through what that is. What goes to your thought process as you're doing that elevation? Well, basically, an elevation is just taking every wall in a room and looking at, you know, north wall, east wall, west wall, south wall, what you would see. And so you're locating plumbing, if there's uh, baseboard and trim, outlets, um, 
like shower shower heights you know is our clients tall do their current showers are their head at seven eight is it seven six is it lower all of those kinds of things um, those decisions that you know a shower is a good example because there's a lot going on there's you know plumbing and niches and tile and possibly a window inverter <laughs> valves yeah, I mean everything. yeah there's all kinds of things to get going to get right but also you know we've seen a lot of projects lately have a lot of wood paneling um, and so those proportions and dimensions is that all getting drawn right and then a section which is where you cut through it and show how all the moldings meet together um, it's just Drawing us makes us think about it ahead of time. It makes us decide ahead of time, which that's what a contractor wants is decisions. And it also forces the, the, what I would say is a plug for designers, for builders, is if you really want your clients to get their decisions up front and think through everything and make a decision so that you have a fixed price or a close to a, a firm budget and you actually know what you're building, you get that designer in and you get it done early or else you're just waiting the whole time to figure out for clients to make up their minds and it's painful yeah it's funny because i had a builder uh, in colorado call me and he's like hey brad so just give me some advice if i'm doing a home like should i try to get all the decisions made by the time i'm done framing and i'm like no yeah like yeah you should have the decisions done before you pull a permit and he's like there's no way how's that possible and i'm like well are you working with designers and he said no yeah so well if you have a designer you yeah. know it, it's real simple the the homeowner their first step should be you know you bring in the team mm-hmm they okay they have their lot now they're working for the floor plan and elevation and then once that's decided you know in coordination with the designer of course right. now as the engineers start working on their arm the designer takes yeah. takes the ceiling heights and the floor plan and now they're doing their magic right right yeah it's 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 great when you get to that point and we've just hit that point in a couple projects where you're on parallel tracks meaning you've been in all these first meetings the architect's going to go draw their permit set we're going to go draw our interior set and then in a couple months the builder's going to get this amazing huge package mm -hmm. which means you have to bid it all but it's a lot of work yeah but you're getting it all at once right and you're you're being able to see spot problems from the beginning yeah and to that point i think we're this is also an incentive for clients as they're listening why they need to hire a designer because what happens is so in that pre-construction process you know the designer is working on the design book the architect's working on the permitted set. Mm -hmm. Magically, if everything goes to plan, they all come together at once, right. submit it for permit. Now, while it's in the city for six to eight weeks, going through that submittal process, you know, the builder can hard price design book and plans. Right. Now, the advantage is when you have a designer that has done the full spec book and they've done the elevations and they've called out every little piece that's going to be installed, like, yeah. trim, you have molding details, as you mentioned, all these right. little different things. It's a price protection for the client. So now when we're pricing it, there's no guessing game. There's no allowances. There's right. no, well, I didn't understand that. Or I only gave you, you know, 10,000 for trim. And after we've bid it, you know, you now have 100,000, right? There's right. this huge delta because you're pretty close. Everything's there. Right. Well, and I think it's our job as the designer to make sure the clients know what they're asking for, right? So they'll show us this image and you're like, okay, that's a... We looked at an image the other day that the hand railing alone was a million dollar hand railing. Wow. <laughs> it was made of like gold and platinum and like crazy stuff. I think now it was did, in is the buyer gonna is the client gonna do it? Well we didn't look at it for this client. We looked at it from a vendor. You know, a vendor showed us this and said we did this in like du Dubai, Dubai or something, you know. Oh, yeah. Crazy. But so clients will show you something really insane and you know what their budget is and so we have to make the gap from their expectation to reality and you can make that in drawing and in 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 discussions and materials faster than you can make that on the job site right absolutely so then you know the and it's a lot less painless doing it right. from pre-construction than right. out of the field right so let's talk about that so hgtv right that's that's a great help or not and online shopping and amazon and all these things so how how has you know, on you know, online shopping and HGTV affected you as a designer when you're trying to set expectations with clients. Of, oh, I found this on Pinterest, and right, you know, they did this balcony mm -hmm. on right. HGTV is like a thousand dollars, and <laughs> it's a fifty thousand dollar job, right? So, how do you manage that aspect? Because that has totally changed, right? What you're doing? Well, I think I don't watch a ton of HGTV, so I don't know all the shows that are out there. But I do, you know, there are some good ones, and there are some other ones that aren't so great. But um, I do think. I love that everyone's excited about design. I love that everyone loves design. And, and I, you watch one of those shows and you can't help but be excited for a transformation. Like we all like that. So 
as far as entertainment, that's great. As far as pricing, you know, it doesn't really, what's great in Waco doesn't really translate financially to Scottsdale, Arizona. You know, we're not buying, there's not too many $75,000 homes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's not. That you can put 50000 into. Like yeah. It's just it's not, you know. It's not reality. Reality yeah. for us. So um, I do like, I do like how excited it makes everyone about design, and I do like how it it shows the process. But it's so. I think it's like any time I've had a friend who's a lawyer, she hated every lawyer TV show, every law show, because it was so unrealistic. And I think some of those shows, like Extreme Makeover, they show up and the the walls are already framed. Mm-hmm. Like, how did you know that the walls were? You know, so you can tell that there's some advance work. You know, they're hiding some processes for production value, right? Yeah. So um, online shopping, I think it's made everyone really informed um, of kind of a mid-level of furniture, like a restoration hardware, um, Pottery Barn, all of those big brands. I think everyone, you know, so it's it's good and it's bad. It's good in that I think a lot of people, like I love Pinterest because it's giving lots of people access to design but there's a point where design stops and execution starts and so if people keep pinning and in the Pinterest rat hole for too long then it can thwart the process like we've already have a document set we've already issued it it's already being bid and built and you're still bringing new images and like oh should we do this should we do this you're like it's a total direction change so I think Pinterest is great and then social media is great too it's great to see what everyone else is doing um but it still has very little to do with reality when you're pricing a custom build home in Arizona, as far as pricing. You so know? yeah, but how do you even manage that, that expectation with the client? Because you furnish most of your homes, mm-hmm. so you're not only doing the interior design, mm-hmm. you know, and going through all that, but you're also doing the furniture design and the drapery and the mm-hmm. artwork mm-hmm. and the rugs. And so when you're putting together that package, how? I don't want to say combat, but how do you work within those confines of price checking and making sure you're right. within realm and your vendors are not selling something online that now you're fighting yeah, internally? Yeah, yeah, it is kind of a the wild, wild west out there. But um, luckily we have um, trade-only accounts with s- some really great, uh, a lot of great manufacturers and vendors that aren't selling online and the quality is superior to that, which is available online. So that protects us in that aspect and it also protects the client in that they're getting versus something that was built offshore for pennies and then marked up marked up marked up and then ooh, this great sell and it's a piece of crap mm-hmm. um you know from wayfair or something like that versus something that you know was built in los angeles or north carolina or something that has quality and longevity so you know I'm not opposed to doing online stuff for like a kid's room or something that's kind of more disposable, but something that you, you know, a really comfortable sectional that you want to last a really long time or a dining table piece of furniture, those should be a higher quality than what's available mass market. So how are you building that resource pool? Because I think what's important if you're specking a certain sofa Mm -hmm. or a lounge chair, you know, are those things you've sat in before? Are you going Mm -hmm. to trade shows? Are you going to different events where you're going to see, touch and fill these products? Yeah. So we, we go to trade shows um, and we, which, you know, North Carolina, High Point, we've gone to Las Vegas, we've gone to Atlanta, lots of uh, different trade shows, but also just longevity of working with certain brands. You see their new stuff before it comes out and I have my favorites on how they sit and um, a lot of stuff we build custom. So, I mean, before the era so I've been in the design world for 21 years now. So before the era of everything online, that's one of the key things was a designer was an access to resources, right? So we already had all these great like makers and uh, workrooms and fabrics and all of those kinds of things. And so now, you know, the internet's just opened that up to, for more people to have access to. Um, but I find for my clients, they're not online shopping they have hired me they've trusted me you know and we're going to do the whole project together and so it's not really an issue if I meet with someone right out of the bat and they're saying things like you know well on HGTV it's this or 
I want to do my whole house from, you know, down east, whatever. I mean, that's just not our client, mm-hmm. you know. And there's nothing wrong with that because we we all have to start somewhere and, and do certain things. But um, we were after like a whole project, like beginning to end. We move you in, your family, your pictures are hung on the wall, your toothbrush is in the Toothbrush drawer. ready. Yep. <laughs> yes. So that's kind of um, where we easily, that's what that first interview is for. It's just. Well, I think what's interesting with your setup, I mean, when you were speaking, it reminds me of maybe like a travel agent, you know, back in the day, travel agent had to have mm-hmm. all the books and yeah. hotels and contacts and right. airlines. Whereas now, you know, a lot of people have access to that. But right there's still like an element of that relationship because right. like in your studio, you can go into the Cesare Design Group and you have, you still have fabrics and you still have books and all these things that you right. lay out for the customer right. that they can see. Touch and feel. Touch and feel. And so yeah. they understand and then you're color, not going back to colorizing, <laughs> but you're putting all the little different elements. Selections, yeah, yes. selections from furniture to finishes together. So right. visually they can see it on a small scale before it's right. installed. Well, and we, we, it's a long-term relationship. I mean, you kind of already know that as a builder because you have a long relationship with the clients, but we do too. And we start, you know, our typical relationships two or three years. And if they want to sit in certain things, we'll go to LA and sit in the design showrooms there. or We'll go to Scottsdale or we'll, you know, we've taken clients to North Carolina. We've gone out to uh, like the flea markets at Round Top Marburger. And, you know, I just was in Milan last year looking at furniture with the client so um, you know I think that's I think that's the exciting thing is the connection and the relationship and we're helping them build this kind of vessel this home for their life and their lifestyle and everything that goes into that speaks to their to their life and so I think it is like a you know it's a trusted guide like a you know even now if you wanted to do a really cool trip to Europe and have all the bells and whistles, you would call a consultant to mm-hmm. help you map all those things or else you're going to spend hours and hours getting your own deal figured out. So I think, you know, there is still place for that designer in being that trusted guide from the beginning all the way to the end. And, um, of course, we're still aware of what's going on, you know. On yeah, design the trends yeah. and what's forthcoming. I know you always talk about that. Okay, well, I've, I've, I'm seeing a lot of this right now, but... Yeah. What's the next thing? You know, yeah. Let's let's create yeah. the next thing. Yeah. Well, and how do you create a home that has really good timeless bones? And then you can do a little bit smattering of trendy, but then I can switch that out. It's not like I have to rip it out, you know, like the flock and foil wallpaper of the 70s or the avocado green kitchen, you know, those kinds of things. How do we avoid those mistakes that are so of the moment that the second it's over, it's done and you want to rip it out? How do you avoid that? So you're thinking, how can we design this where most of the bones, if you will, or cabinetry is going to be timeless, but maybe put in a light fixture that's a little fun. Right. Or some cabinet fun. hardware that, hey, you know, yeah. if we want to switch it out in five years, we can. Right. Well, and I, yeah, I always say that the most important, the most expensive things to change should be the most timeless. So, like, there was a time in the late 90s, well, 90s, was all the tile patterns in the showers, like borders you know, deco borders, trim, trim, trim. Well, you go now back to these, you know, multi-million dollar houses that are people are buying and they're we're scraping all those out. And so how can you not get so cutesy or so decorated or so literal in things that could be more timeless and not have to rip out the shower? So I remember that quote that you said, expensive things should be timeless right yeah, yeah. the most the most expensive things should be or hardest to change things should be the most timeless because those are the things that you're going to date your house if you do like if i do my master bath my master shower tiled and i do it really trendy like right now it would be like concrete tile which wouldn't last right <laughs> but which we can't stand because it looks great on pinterest till the first day they're using it and walking on it no. and oils from their feet and it's then it's nightmare. all stained and dirty and they're like hey what's going on yeah yeah and then it's your problem yeah um even though you sealed it like eight times yeah before you grouted it yeah yeah yes so uh yeah i think that you know if you do a really crazy you know people went crazy for the tuscan uh, for so long, these carved beams and all this heavy, heavy stuff. And it's like, okay, well, could you have done like simple beams, you know, lighter or more timeless on some things and then gone heavy on the furniture that you could change or the art or the, you know, light fixtures. So I think it's a balance. 
So, so Caroline, you've, you know, you alluded to this. I mean, you've worked on some amazing projects for our listeners that haven't seen some of your work. I mean, you do some award-winning work all throughout the world, all throughout the country. So how have you built that brand? I mean, is there any secret to that? How have you grown to what you are now? Well, I was really lucky in the beginning of my career to work for uh, a great interior design firm in Scottsdale, Wiseman and Gale, and they had just started dipping their toe into doing uh, high-end golf clubhouses as well as residential. And so um, the designer, did I mess it up? The designer that I uh, worked with there, Donna Valone, was overseeing their um, clubhouses, and here I came in with a lot of you know, education and training in more commercial interiors. And so we were doing these clubhouses. Our first one was in Flagstaff called Forest Highlands. And so people see the clubhouse and they want to know who did the design. And so then they hire, they, you know, seek out the designer. So um, with Wiseman Miguel and then later um, Donna Valone split off and started Valone Design and I went with her. We, I did six clubhouses in seven years. So Forest Highlands and Flagstaff. Uh, Lahontan in Lake Tahoe, uh, Silverleaf Clubhouse in Scottsdale, Santa Luz in San Diego, worked on Superstition Mountain, and I'm forgetting, oh, and Glen Wild in Park City, Utah. So people are seeing this, it's the, you know, the club, the, the course has been built, the club goes up, people see this, they're all buying lots and building houses, and so you start to get that, oh, she's the one that did the clubhouse, oh, she's the one that did the clubhouse, so you start to do that, and I think um, that's, you know, th a definitely was a huge boost at the beginning of my career was doing that commercial alongside residential and also working for two amazing design firms and and meeting those clients and having those opportunities. But I also think if you don't do a good job on one, you're not getting another one. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to, you know, we don't advertise, we don't uh, do any marketing and which- You're the you best know. known secret in town, right? <laughs> Hopefully it's not too big of a secret. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, for me, when people say, you know, what's your marketing or how do you get new clients, it's like I do the best job that I can for the clients that I have now, and hopefully that will just keep. Um, well, to your point about doing a good job with a lot of your clients are repeat clients. Yeah. So they're, you're doing their home here, and then you're doing their home out of state right. and other properties, and right. so you've built that reputation with them. Right, but also the relationships of, you know, your builders, your, your architects, your builders, your realtors, your subs. If, if I'm out doing a really good job on the project that I'm on now, chances are the next time the builder has, you know, someone say, who would you recommend as a designer? Hopefully that my name would be on the list because we had a good experience. So I think just doing your job really well and being who you are really authentically um, is the best advertising and happy clients are the best advertising. And so you can um, hopefully build a following based on that. So what's really good, I, I think what adds to your value is you've done commercial and residential. So mm -hmm. what are some of the differences? I mean, do you like one more than the other? I like them both, and they, I like them both for different reasons. So commercial is uh, more non-emotional. Um, it's, you know, it's I like project. that word. That's a great definition yeah, yeah. for commercial. So it's, you know, there's a clear vision, um, and you're the, the valued expert, and, and so, it, and it's very clear. It's very budgets and, you know, you better hit those deadlines and the train the trains moving whether you're on it or not you know whereas residential is more emotional it's more sentimental it's more personal and so that's exciting but also challenging in its own way um, because contractors and uh, budget watchers don't really like the emotional <laughs> part of it you know so you have to be able to walk both lines. You know, sometimes one partner in the relationship is more budget-minded and one partner is more, um, like in a marriage, one's more budget, one's more emotional, and that doesn't necessarily go along the lines of genders anymore at all, because a lot of times I will only work with, almost always work, almost exclusively work with the husband on his, because he's the one that's into the project, and the wife's just kind of like, oh my gosh, you know? And then other times, it's the wife's baby and the husband's like, oh my gosh. So, and sometimes they're equally invested. So it's just kind of, it's interesting, but it's their home. And so you can say all the things that you want, but at the end of the day, it's where they live. It's where they're having their life. And so they get the final say. Whereas a commercial, it's kind of a team, right? It's a group like, okay, here's the investor. Here's the owner. Here's, you know, the operator. Here's the designer. How are we going to make this work? 
So yeah. it's just, it's two different things. And even to your point, you know, in the bathroom of a restaurant, even if it's an upscale bathroom, you know, there's still limitations. They just, yeah, yeah. they want something nice, but there's also a return really well. on investment. has to wear well, traffic. ADA. Does it look nice? ADA. Yeah, so yeah. there's other elements where as a personal home, now it's theirs and there's a lot of emotion right. attached. Well, and it's saying, it's telling the world the story about them. Like, so your house tells your story. So, you know, that's, there's a lot of pressure in that too. Also, I think commercial, the rigor of commercial, of the drawings and the budgets has really made me so much better uh, on our document sets on the residential because we apply the same principles. So which one's your favorite? Which one's my favorite? As far as commercial residential. Well, residential, Is I it? think. Um, well, because, Even you though know, it's more labor intensive and there's a lot more massaging yeah, with the client. Yeah. Well, first of all, I started my business, my own firm, in 2008. So the best time to start? <laughs> the world was melting down, and there weren't a lot of high-end clubhouses going on at that time. So um, I like resident. I do like the personal. I, I like getting to know people and helping, like learning about them and ma having their house be uniquely theirs. So. so how do you, when you know, being that you're in residential and you love that element, how do you tell a homeowner no? Because sometimes, which, which well, let's just say that they want a certain element that they're adamant about that you know is not going to mm -hmm. look good when it's installed. Mm -hmm. Like, how would you deliver that? How do you? Well, I know you personally, so I know how you do it. But <laughs> no, that's how I say <laughs> it. Um, I think, I think you have to kind of, first of all, you have to all be going after the same thing. You have to be on the same page and have a common vision. And if there's trust, then she's going to believe you or he's going to believe you when you say, okay, you've totally ruined it. Or please, 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 like, can I, that be my one veto? Like, I beg for my veto. On the other hand, I've done the opposite where I've shamed, basically shamed a client into doing the range the way that I wanted them to do it. And then it won, like, all these awards. And, of course, he doesn't remember that I shamed <laughs> him into doing it. But, um, you know, so... I think I think if you have a relationship, then they're going to listen to you, and and then, yeah, I hope. Yeah, hopefully, right. That's why right. they're hiring you. Right. So, do you have any pet peeves in oh, design funny. that drive you crazy? I have a lot of pet peeves, but that's probably we probably want people listening to like. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what's something that maybe is not like super offensive? Like, I tell you one that I have. Okay. Um. So. A, you know, and I've talked about this on my social media is whenever you have an outside corner mm -hmm. to not end tile or stone, right? Because then you can see, you know, you see the side of it. Right. You always want to dye a backsplash or you want to on the outside of a home, you always want to return it into an inside corner or something where it's For tight sure. in. So you don't see the thickness of the stone right. or the unfinished edge. Right. So that's one of the things. That, and, and I personally like when they'll take the tile full height and maybe right. a, or the courts you know full height backsplash or above the cabins i mean those are little things i like but some of that's budget restrictive right so anything along those lines where well you've seen stuff and you're like oh it just yeah my this mantra has changed a little bit recently but i love to say just say no to foe <laughs> is don't do fake so what you're talking about the stone the mm -hmm. thin stone on the front of the house that you can tell is thin manufactured stone and it just screams, I'm, I'm pasted on, and I'm fake, and I have no integrity, right? So I think details like that have integrity, details, materials that have integrity, that have uh, authenticity. So that's why I say just say no to faux. So I've always been very adverse like to faux. So if you were going to want a plaster look, I'd say do real plaster. If you want um, stone, do real stone. Now, I've amended a little bit, which is kind of shocking to me, and that some of the man-made marbles are actually mm -hmm. really pretty and quartz, like engineer quartz, quartz yes, mm -hmm. are actually really pretty and their durability is you know off the charts so i have amended that statement but for the most part i don't like things that are looking trying to look like things they're not like don't do a porcelain floor that's trying to look like wood just do wood or do porcelain that looks like porcelain like I don't like materials trying to be other materials. So would you waver on that a little bit? Like, let's say a bathroom, if you have a client that's adamant that I want wood flooring in their bathroom, right? Whereas we know, okay, well, you're going to get out in and out of the shower, you're by the tub, there's mm -hmm. splash, you know, and it could, you know, mm -hmm. warp. And so there's issues that from a builder side, the mentality of having that warranty issue in right. the bathroom. So would you still determine? I would try to talk. I so would you'd try talk, to talk about of doing wood or a wood-looking tile, and you'd say, let's go to something yeah. that's 
maybe a marble or a right. porcelain that right. looks like right. it's supposed to be here. Yes, because wood, that tile doesn't feel like wood. It doesn't. Because part of wood is the feel and the way that it makes your house sound and the way that you stand on it and it feels good it's on a lot your feet softer. and it's warmer. You don't have grout lines. Right, right. So, so to me, it's like I wouldn't want to step out on like really rustic gray barn wood out of my shower. That would be gross. Well, just because it's tile doesn't make it any weirder, you know. So, yeah. So I have some, like I don't like, you know, really crazy orange speckly granite. You know, there I have I have things. Some of that green granite that we'd see a lot of. The, well, the orange, you know, the, the orange. orange and black that was so prevalent. But yes, I don't like side splashes that aren't done well. You know, all kinds of little pet peeves. So why did you get into design? Like, how did you know that this was your calling in life, if you will? Um, my mom was what you would call kind of a decorator. So she had a knack and she helped some friends. And I was actually up at BYU going to be a physical therapist. I was working at the hospital up there. And my life kind of imploded. And I came home and was working for a friend's fabric store. And I just started redoing their design windows and loving that and like the storefront out front that people walk by is yeah, that what you're yeah, saying like a, yeah it's a, it's like it's called by the yard it's in tempe it's still in it's it's a fabric store it's still in in business and i started doing their window displays and selling fabric and i just like I, maybe i should do design and so i went to asu and talked to them about their design program and found out that they're one of the best in the nation that they're high ranked and but they're five years and you're going to do two years and only 15 out of 100 get in, and then you're going to do another three years and do a thesis. At this point, I had wasted like two and a half years at BYU. So I literally was in front of the Ar School of Architecture at ASU crying to my mom on the phone. I said, I'm going to be 26 when I graduate. <laughs> I'm <gonna be> so <laughs> old. And she's like, well, you're going to be 26 anyways. So just go for it. And so luckily, I went for the design education and got in the first time. Real quick, if I interrupt you, it's kind of funny because when you think about it, most of us would be working until uh -huh. later in years. So when you think about 26, well, you probably still have 30, 40 years, yeah, right? Yeah. That you're going to be working by anyways. Yeah, but when you're, but when when you're, you're young, like trying to get a college degree, you should be out by like 22, yeah, 23. Yeah, and your friends are getting out 22, 23, right. and you're like, oh, I'm going to be so far behind. But yeah, yeah, I'm going to be so far behind. So, um, and it's such a rigorous program, you know? Mm -hmm. So I did that, and then I started, uh, I did an internship Wiseman and Gal, and then went on working for them, and then. So you did an internship with them during college. Yeah. At ASU. Yeah, and I worked during college. I had to support myself. So, and the studio program at that time actually tried to deter you from working. They wanted you so focused on school. So I got in trouble, a lot for working, and they also kind of looked down their nose at the fact that I was interested in residential and working for versus a big, you know commercial firm so they so they were kind of because most com commercial firms just to give some feedback there most of them do their own design right they're doing architectural design in-house inspecting right. all the plants the tile the grout yeah. i mean yeah. everything right so you know they wanted you know they wanted everyone to want to go work for gensler or you know these really big firms that do hospitality or um, offices or hospitals or all of those kinds of things and i knew i wanted to be in residential so i went to wiseman and gal for my internship and was there three years, then we split and started Valone Design. I was with Donna at her firm for eight years, and then in 2008 started my own. So you just knew you loved it, though, Yeah. since ASU. Once you yeah. worked for the fabric yeah. store. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I knew. I mean, my I, if you look back, there were signs, like, because I would always rearrange the furniture in my room, like, up <laughs> in the middle of the night, you know, rearranging things. But I just, I was so academic as, as a high school or junior high and high school, I was so academically driven that I didn't fancy myself as creative. And so I didn't really see that side of myself until I started doing, you know, more creative things. And then once I started a design school and the drawing and all of that came in, then it was, it was. So one of the age old questions, I think for a lot of people, especially now at the cost of college, I mean, do you feel that that was super beneficial going to mm -hmm. college for design? Absolutely. So you'd recommend that whether it be a specialized design school or college design program? I think it's, there's a varying, there's a wide, the pendulum swings wide on the level of design school. So I would say know what you're doing and call me if you don't. <laughs> when uh, you say know what you're doing, at least do the research and know the what the research, school, right. like a success quick, rate. A quick yeah, and like what's their job placement and what do those people go on to do? What are their graduates doing? Because ASU is amazing. And I've also hired people, uh, some of my design team uh, did the Flagstaff NAU program and they're really amazing. Uh, Scottsdale Community College has a good program for people who, you know, have 
raise their family and want to go back and, and do it. Um, and actually, funny enough, I actually have two people that I've hired from LDS Business College that actually had really good design skills. So, um, you know, I think, there, I know there's a small quick fix programs that aren't great, so I just think do your research, make sure that you're getting actual skills, you know, versus just. Well, what's interesting, I mean, here in Scottsdale and Phoenix, I mean, there's a lot of great design firms, a lot of great students mm -hmm. that come out of yes. Scottsdale community and ASU. I right. Mean, yeah. No, we have good feeder schools competition. for sure. Yeah. So what are some of the things you learned in college that have like helped you, you know, what are some of the things you learned in design school? Was it CAD or some of the software no. elements or? No, it was, I mean, we, or is it more just the mentality of design and yeah. placement and yeah. spacing? Well, I think, you know, the first thing they, the, at least for me, the first thing I remember really learning that I thought was just kind of great was you can have the best idea in the world, but if you can't communicate it, you're done, right? So how do you communicate it? Well, you draw it, you explain it, you present it, you show it. So if you can't communicate it, then the idea is going to die. So, you know, I think it's, it's approaching it's problem solving and then, you know, also learning to present and learning to be confident in your ideas because I have some kids will call me in high school and say, I think I want to be an interior designer. Can I come shadow you? And they'll shadow me for a week and then they're like, holy cow, I can't be up in front of people. I can't tell people what they should and shouldn't do. And, you know, so I think a certain element of public speaking, public speaking, confidence, yeah. Self, you know, being able to put yourself out there. So, I think um, because we, I I like to work with people who like people who have strong opinions, right? So you don't want to hire a designer and have her go, well, that's what you want to do. Well, it's interesting. One thing I always like that you say is you talk about you need to have strong opinions. What you do, which is important, you're a designer and you're right. responsible for the design of this house. But you always say that. Um, you know, if a client wants to push back, you say, well, finishes don't have feelings, right? Is <laughs> yeah. that how you say it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, when we're presenting like images or finishes, I want them to be really opinionated. They're not going to hurt my feelings. So I say finishes or images, they don't have feelings. So if you hate it, just say you hate it. We'll take it off the table. Don't like, well, that could work. It's like, no, no, no. We don't have time for that. Like, yeah. just be honest. You're not going to Say you like this feelings. tile or you don't. And yeah. we'll swap it out. And you don't so have simple. to know why. You can mm -hmm. just be like, mm, it's a no, you know? And if it's not, hell yes, then it's no. Yeah. Right. So if I don't love it and it's not great, it's not like, hell yes, I'm going to do that. Then it should be enough. Yeah, that's great advice. So what's next for Cesare Design Group? What are some of the things exciting you upcoming for the firm? Um, we are working on a really crazy project right now. That's is this massive. a three year one? Oh, it'll be like five or seven. OK, I think for a great client. And it, it I can't say a lot about it, but let's just say it's bigger than six of our normal houses. So and you can't even tell us the square footage? I think it's over 40, approaching 50 at this point. That's incredible. Yeah. So um, Mark Candelari is the architect, and he's posted a model, like the, vid the video of the model on it. I don't know, you know. So anyways, that's going to be crazy, but that is taking a lot of our time. And then um, we have some other great projects that we'll complete in spring. And then um, we're kind of maybe toying with the idea of expanding into event and um, creating an, a, an, a, a creative venue for people to gather and, and these curated events. We're kind of dipping our toes. And you probably don't want to expand upon that too much because there's some proprietary yes. things yes. happening there yes. with your future endeavor. Yes. So um, hopefully it'll be something that people can interact with you know, a DeCesare design space in, in, I have a lot of people always saying, can we rent your house? Can we borrow your house? Can we do your house? And I've done it to a certain extent, but now I don't want people having events in my house anymore. And so we're. Well, because one thing you do, you do the market here, right? Yeah, so you have yeah. the Gilbert market where they come in your backyard and yeah. take over your kitchen. Yeah. So we're, we're looking, you know, at some property and doing some things that will kind of continue that. But as far as DDG, I mean, DeCesare Design Group, our core every single day is we just want to do really good design for really good people, you know, with really good people, right? So for great clients with great uh, builders and designer or architects and landscape designers, and we want to be really proud of our work. And if that's all we ever do, then that's great. 
So we share the same philosophy because I look at it, you know, we're almost married to our clients for a year and a half, as you for mentioned, sure. sometimes longer. Mm-hmm. And so you want to work for good people. You want to work with good teams where, because it's a stressful job. It is. It's, yeah. a, it's a lot of money and it's a lot of emotion. Like it's, it's their home. A ton of problems all yeah. the time. Yes. And, you know, you've got the sub base and all of those challenges that like, it's hard out there for you guys. Labor issues. I yep. mean, it's hard. So, um. Our job is to help, hopefully, help smooth all that. To take a really difficult process and make it enjoyable for everybody. You know, at the end of the day, like, oh my gosh, we're so proud of what we built. The client loves it, and hopefully, we're you know somewhat profitable <laughs> as hopefully. businesses. You know. So tell us where our listeners can find you because I know you say you're good, you know, best kept secret. You're not that secretive. So where? You know, website, social media, where yeah. can our listeners find you? So we're, um, our website is www.decesaredesigngroup. You might have to spell com. that too. I know. So decesare is D-E-C-E-S-A-R-E designgroup.com. And then um, I think my social media is decesare design group on Instagram. So that's kind of where we are. And we'll tag you. So any yeah. of our listeners, they can find us on LinkedIn and we'll tag you on LinkedIn and Instagram and all right. those locations so they right. can find you. But yep, we're in Old Town Mesa is our studio and our office. And, uh, and it's a super projects. cute place, too. So anyways, Caroline, it's so great having you on today. Thank you for joining the AT Construction Podcast and giving all this wonderful advice to our listeners. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Okay. A big thanks to all of you for tuning in today with Caroline Cesare. Make sure and go give her a follow. She is super talented. Her firm does some amazing work. And we're super excited to announce our guest for next week. It is Justin Newman, president of Hardison Downing Construction. They are a large commercial contractor uh, throughout Phoenix, and they also do work all over the country. In his episode, we speak about employee empowerment, uh, self-performance, and we also get into internships, some of the benefits of having an internship program through college as you're looking to hire within your company. 